read them this morning. I did turn it on, I think, didn't I? Or did I turn it off? Battery needed. I guess the program killed it. Or we can move this microphone. you can hear even if you don't want to this morning. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to continue actually in our study of this uh, passage because in reality, uh, this chapter has been in, in reality a Christmas passage. It talks earlier in this chapter about Jesus' uh, birth to death experience. He, he was made a man and he humbled himself, became obedient to the, to the death of the cross. And and thus it declares in that, that short phrase in verses 6 through 8 of this chapter the, uh, the, the essence of the coming and the purpose of Jesus Christ because we know why he came. We know that the birth is, is and, and though it's a time of celebration because God became man and he dwelt among us. And though the world rejected him according to John 1, his own didn't receive him, the world did not know him, we know he's coming again in power and glory. But he came the first time really to rescue and to save and restore. Luke 19.10, the Lord Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And then in John 10, that wonderful passage, Jesus says in John in verses 9 through 11, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The sh good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And so we know why the Lord Jesus came, and that's what the Bible refers to in these passages. And as we get into chapter 3, Paul re rehearses his testimony of his faith in Christ, and he came to know Christ. He discovered the riches of God's grace and his goodness and his kindness. And in that passage, he, he discards religious pride, doesn't he? He realizes that his church works, his religious works, were not enough to produce the righteousness that would fit him for heaven, and instead he declares in verse 9, that he instead is found in Christ. Not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And he recognized that if we're going to be fit for heaven, we need a righteousness that comes from God because it's his righteousness to equip us to live in his presence. And so Paul, after he rehearses in verse chapter 2, the coming and death of Jesus Christ, he mentions his own personal testimony and points out to us the fact that you and I, if we're going to be fit for heaven, need to stand not in our own works and our own abilities, but instead stand in the righteousness of Christ. And we know that's the real reason for the season. And that's why some, this time of year when people celebrate Christmas, they might have some happiness from happenings in a, in a, in a moment of, of fun and, and uh, celebration. But the true joy of Christmas is, comes from knowing the person of Christmas, doesn't it? Knowing why he came. Knowing that he came not only to be just as a babe in a manger, but to be a man who would be the sacrifice for our sins. As Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And that's another Christmas verse, isn't it? 
He himself shared in the, in the same, in human flesh, so that he might destroy him who had the power of death, so he might conquer death, hell, and the grave, and offer to us the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And then as we go on in this passage, we find in verse 10, Paul saying this, he turns kind of from the celebration of his sal salvation to the desire of his Christian life when he says in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That wonderful verse, that phrase where Paul declares that I might know him and he kind of shifts from talking about his, his personal salvation, his faith in Christ for salvation to a declaration of the desire of his life in his Christian life. He, he not only discusses God as his personal savior, and sometimes we refer to believers, those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal savior, because Jesus Christ personally died for each one of us. But here he turns to the, to the encouragement to follow his example, to pursue Jesus Christ in a personal relationship, to know a personal God in a practical way in our daily lives. And that was the unconditional love and grace that he declares in, in the beginning of this chapter in regards to being standing in the righteousness of Christ that drew him. He says when he, when he, it's almost like a crescendo as he celebrates the fact that it's not my righteousness, it's the righteousness that was provided for me, outside of me, and in spite of me through the crosswork of Jesus Christ that I stand in. And that, that, that has a cause and effect in my life. He says that I might know him. That's, that's, that's the effect. It's driven me or drawn me to want to walk into and enjoy a deeper relationship with, with the babe in the manger who humbled himself and became obedient to the death of the cross and then rose again victorious. And, Jesus, and Paul says here, I want to know him. The word know means to come to know. It has a, the indication that it's a growth in our relationship and our personal walk with Jesus Christ, so that we can not only call Jesus our personal Savior, but our personal Lord, friend, guide, keeper, and on and on we go, because he's engaged in our lives in a personal way. The love of Jesus Christ did not end at the cross. It extends into our daily lives as he seeks to rescue us from our, sin, from our, from our personal sin and deliver us from this present evil world and help us to navigate the pitfalls of this life and protect us along the way and so on. And Paul says, I want to discover in my Christian life the riches of his kindness that he showed me in salvation. He extends to me in, in sanctification in my daily life, and I want to know him better. That was the desire of his heart, and I believe that's where God would dwell each of us. In some ways, this is the counterpart to the Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament where we're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. That's what Paul's expressing here desire to grow in that love for our God. Now we know, if you turn with me over to John chapter 17, we understand that that relationship flows from our standing in Christ. Because Paul, in chapter 3, describes himself as standing in the righteousness of Christ. But what we find in Jesus' words, especially in the Gospel of John, re records for us, Jesus' desire to want to have a oneness and an intimacy with his own. In John 17, verse 20, he says this, and he prays to his father before he goes to the cross. He says this, I do not pray for these alone, that was his present disciples, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. That's where you and I fit in this verse. We're, we're that category. 
we've we've trusted Christ through the word passed on from the apostles who recorded the words of the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be may be made perfect in one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me now on one hand some people would say this is a positional declaration here that we have that unity with Christ we have a oneness with one another as believers in the family of God and we also have a oneness with God and the Father but that oneness is rooted in this standing we have that that verse 23 I and them and you and me we have this unique oneness with Christ but it's a oneness that shows itself in our Christian lives because it says here there's evidence of that. It works itself out in that in the enjoyment of the oneness that the world may know. It's one of the evidences of the reality of Christ is the oneness of believers lived out in a practical way in our lives. And it is expressed as a result of a oneness with Christ. And as you and I relate to Christ in the oneness of intimacy and union and fellowship and harmony in our walk, we can extend that to one another. The same grace and kindness he extends to us, we can show in our love for one another. Jesus desired that. And that's what's amazing. Not only that the Lord Jesus stepped into humanity, became a babe in a manger, grew up to, to bear the sins of you and I, such undeserving sinners, rose again powerful and victorious, but that as, a, as seated at the right hand of God, he wants to be engaged in our lives. He wants to enjoy that oneness, that fellowship that, with you and I in our lives. And that's why John 15 is all about abiding in him it's about that abiding relationship if you flip back you're close by we can look back at chapter 15 verses 4 and 5 where it says abide in me and i in you now, this is practical this is not getting saved this is for christians who are told to make their home order their lives in christ and i in you because christ is in us as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me i am the vine you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. This is not about talking about getting saved. This is talking about where you live your life, about where you, wh where you order your life, your passions and priorities and perspectives. It talks, it's just, this is about the source of life. Christ is in us and he is the vine. We're the branches. We draw all life from him. And it's that kind of intimacy and oneness that God desires from his children. God didn't create mankind to be independent, live as they want, and nod to God once in a while when they go to church or happen to pray once in a while. No, this is the daily intimacy. That's why God created us. It's sin that made us independent, isn't it? It's sin that made us rebellious. It's sin that makes us want to do our own thing, glorify ourselves, pursue our, pursue our own interests. The normal heart of a believer who is Christ in him is to pursue that I may know him because Christ is in us. Actually, when I was in Bible school, this is our theme verse for the, for the year I was in, uh, first year I was in Bible college, the only year I was in Bible college, actually, first and only. I didn't learn it all in one year, I just didn't go back the second year, so. Point is, this is our theme verse, and there's a song that, uh, that one of our classmates wrote based on this verse. And we are challenged to make this our life's passion, that I may know him. Because that's what God created us for. He just isn't looking to impose some legalistic standard on us to have a bunch of, you know, holy robots walking around in, in, 
in an empty relationship. No, he wants that obedience. He wants the righteousness and holiness, but he wants it to flow from knowing him. And that's, the, that's, that's exactly what Paul's expressing here in this verse. So the, that bears the, begs the question, how do we get to know him? How do we get to, get to know him better? You know, I've actually dealt with this question with a couple people recently. How do we get to know him? Where do we meet with him and spend time with him? Because that's what builds relationships. We know that from experience. Relationships are built through time and spending time with, with one another. And so we have to ask ourselves then, how has, we, how, how has he or does he reveal himself to us? Then if we're to know him, by getting to understand him, perceive him, relate to him. Well, we know, first of all, that creation declares his glory, doesn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God. God's revealed himself through the wonder of creation. But we know primarily he's also revealed himself through his word. And that's very important for us to realize. That's where we meet him, is in the Bible. John 1, 1 he's called the living word. The word is made flesh and dwelt among us. In John 3.34, he says, Jesus said this, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give to the Spirit by measure. In John 5.38, he says, But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. In John 6.63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. God has chosen to communicate himself to us through his word. John 5.24, a salvation verse we like to quote, says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is, has passed from death into life. In that passage in John 17, we just read verse 8 says, For I have given to them the words which you have given me. That was Jesus' responsibility. The words that his father gave him. He says, I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You know, when Jesus met the disciples on the Damascus Road, remember those that didn't recognize him and know him, what he did was, according to Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and the prophets, he turned to the Bible he expounded to them all the scriptures of things concerning himself. God has revealed himself to us through his word. John 17, 17, the later in that chapter says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God communicates to us. He reveals himself to us. He declares himself to us. He opens himself up to us by declaring to us his word. That's how we relate to him. It's the only way we can relate to him. Now, we might understand things better when we begin to apply them. We appreciate them more. Maybe they're understood more clearly when we apply the word of God. We trust the promises of God. Yes, we need spiritual exercise to develop that relationship, but it's all rooted and founded in, thus says the Lord. It's the word of God that reveals himself to us. And I run into a lot of Christians today who do not realize how desperately we need the word if we're to grow. Right from the beginning, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Hebrews chapter 5, those who had regressed in their Christian life, it's because they, become, they became unskillful in the word of righteousness. We desperately need the word of God. It is how God has communicated to us. And then he sends us to, to proclaim the word. 
In Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission. We're to teach, teach all nations to observe all things, whatever Jesus has commanded us. Ephesians 4.15, the admonition to the church says, but speak the truth in love that people may grow up into him who is the head, Christ. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, and so on. Titus 2.1, another pastor, but as for you, speak things which are proper for sound doctrine or sound teaching. Words. It's the word of God, specifically, that as we ingest them, the spirit of God enlightens our thinking. He engraves them on our heart. And as we believe them by faith, incorporate them into our lives, and as the Spirit of God makes them real in our lives, we grow. We, we, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that comes one way through the Word. Now I say that this morning because we need to remember how important it is to get in the Word. Because if we don't know him, we don't experience what he's declaring in that verse. In Philippians 3.10, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, be made conformable unto his death, and so on. It's often we flounder in those areas because we're really not in the word. We're not hiding in our hearts. But also, just another consideration. You ever ask yourself, wonder why God doesn't communicate in a different way? Why doesn't he just use the sky as a, as a movie, pro movie screen and project an image across the sky? Give us object lessons, illustrations to teach us. He could paint the pictures of his story past and future across the sky and everybody could see it. You wouldn't need to understand the language. You wouldn't need to be able to read the Bible. You wouldn't need any of those things. You could just see it. Why does he do it that way? And it's because, and someone pointed this out to me recently, Words are objective. Images are subjective. When you see an image, you interpret it in light of your perspective, sometimes your, your own experience, sometimes your own likes and dislikes, your own agendas. Think art gallery. Now, I'm not an uh, art expert by any means, but supposedly people go in art gallery and they interpret a painting and they see passion. And they see, they, they see beauty and meaning. And I can see beauty once in a while, but, you know, I'm kind of dull between the ears. I see a picture. It's either pretty or not. If it's got, you know, a cabin in the woods and fish in the lake, it's even better as far as I'm concerned. But people interpret it. And that's very subjective, isn't it? Images are very subjective. And that's why God's given us his word. Because it's objective. It means one thing. God said what he means and means what he said. And that's why in a passage on inspiration in Second Peter chapter 1, it says this, and I like the way the New American Standard Bible puts it. He says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It's not subjective. Scripture is not subject to how you interpret it. And sometimes when I discuss things with people about the Scriptures, and maybe we don't, we don't see things quite the same, they like to say, oh, that's how you interpret it. No, that's what I believe God meant when he said it. That's what it comes to. I don't, you, you don't interpret Scripture according to your own interpretation, what is appeals to you, what likes you. And that's why sometimes we come across passages of scriptures that are intimidating because we don't understand. And if there's a misunderstanding there, sometimes can threaten some things we believe. But we need to approach the scripture with the respect that it's objective. God meant one thing when he wrote it and when he said it. And our duty is to study it in its grammatical context, historical context, to understand the meanings of the words so we can understand exactly what he said. It's objective. That's why God's 
He's left no wiggle room. No room for interpretation. And by the way, <clears throat> as a warning, that's why, that's why we need to be careful with uh, movies. Movies that are depict especially Jesus in his life. Because images are subjective. And they're very much subject to the interpretation of the viewer. And we have to ask ourselves in some of these films, first of all, is the message really true to the scriptures? And we're so, we live in such a time of, we, of in which we like to be entertained that we just like the entertainment value and, and, and we like the general warm and fuzziness sometimes of some, you know, of, of parts of those movies. And I don't, I'm not trying to undermine them. But we need to recognize that some of these popular films that portray Jesus are written and produced by unsafe people, religious people. One of the most popular ones have Mormon producers out there. Terribly popular amongst Christians. And the message isn't true when you examine it. It isn't real. How can you expect it to be accurate when it comes from Hollywood or an unsafe person or someone from a cult? We have to be careful, don't we? Secondly, filmmakers always, Hollywood, whatever, always has to add dialogue to fill in the gaps of the story. And I think that's dangerous. Well, you might do that in your mind, and that's okay. But when you have somebody who doesn't know anything about the Bible watch a film and think this is about that God of the Christians, they take it all to be as true, even though you have to fill in all those gaps in the dialogue if you're going to make it entertaining and enjoyable to watch. And many viewers don't realize what's in Scripture and what is conjecture. And sometimes that conjecture can damage the story of Scripture. And the third thing, of course, is the images are subjective. You interpret it how you like. I'm amazed at some of the films out there that are so contrary to scriptures that Christians just love because they interpret it into their frame of reference and they get maybe a, a benefit from it that way but the message that they proclaim very inaccurate God has chosen to use his word and that's what we're sent to preach is his word proclaim his word and we have to be very careful in all methods of ministry to do that but for you and I back to our context Philippians 3.10 if we're going to know him there's one way that happens, through an understanding of his word. And that's why when we go to church, we pick a church, when we attend a church, we pick one where the word of God is uplifted and honored, where people see through the pastor and see Jesus Christ and his beauty and wonder in the word. Because it's not about an entertaining preacher or an engaging speaker. It's about someone who can communicate the word of God so that we can see Jesus with more clarity and his word more clarity so we can anchor our faith. And thus says the Lord. Now, as we go back to Philippians chapter 3, Paul identifies something specific. What is it about Jesus that he wants to know? He gets real specific here. What is it that he wants to know better? He says, that I might know him, the object of my affection, my pursuit, my desire, is I first want to know the power of his resurrection. That's a big statement, isn't it? And it's understandable because strength and power and ability are not something we naturally have, is it? Romans 8.3 tells us that we are weak in the flesh. And we just have to look around at the condition the world's in, at mankind's inability to make right decisions, smart decisions, wise decisions, and instead engage in destructive behavior. I don't care if you go from politics to the neighborhood or the hood, if you prefer. There are, there are, people are bound to make bad decisions because we don't have that wisdom in ourselves to keep us from those destructive behaviors. Even in normal 
daily lives, we often are abusive towards the ones we love because we just don't have the strength to sometimes resist, you know, catty words and mean spirits and bad tempers and all those things. We don't have the strength, the ability in it. We have a need. That's why Paul says, I need to know, I need more of that power, the power that rose, that, which raised Christ from the dead. And that's available to us. Ephesians 1.19 says this, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That power is available. God doesn't have one set of power for this job and one for that power. He has all the strength we need for the, for the lives we live and the tasks he calls us to. And that was the prayer of the apostles, that we would know that power. And so Paul wanted to experience it personally, and no doubt encourages us to personally experience the power, resurrection power in our lives. There's a lot of things in, in Christianity that should characterize our lives. We talked about one, the oneness and unity that is to be um, expressed before the unsaved, that they recognize Jesus in us. This is another area, power. You might break that down into ability, strength, and power. The ability to live holy lives, strength to stand, and power in ministry. Now you can break it down differently if you will, but I have here in this an acronym ASP. God's given us ASP. He's given us ability. He's given us strength to stand. He's given us power in ministry. One of the characteristics of our lives is the inability just to do right. You know, rebellion is bound in the heart of a child. And if you don't, if parents don't unbind it, so to speak, in training and teaching and discipline through their lives, it's going to be bound in the heart of an adult. It's, it's characteristic of a sinful nature because of our animosity towards God. It's expressed in a spirit of rebellion towards God, towards authority in, in life. We don't like to be told what to do, do we? Paul discovered this even early in his Christian life in Romans 7, 18. He says, I know that in me, that is my flesh dwells no good thing. I have a desire to do what's right. But the strength, power, its strength isn't there. The ability isn't there. He doesn't find that ability until he gets the spirit of God in chapter 8. Who, of whom he says, will fulfill the righteousness of the law in us. God does that for us. And so we don't have the ability. And yet God tells us to live holy lives in 1 Peter chapter 1. Be holy as I am holy. And we think about living holy lives, living right, living righteously. It really has two sides of that coin. One is living according to the right standard, the righteous standard found in God's word. Doing right, however you want to put it. On the other side of that ledger is resisting temptation, isn't it? The desires of the flesh and the allurement of the world that would draw us away from that holy, righteous standard of God. So we really have two sides of that that we don't have the ability to resist, but that ability does come from God. And it's realized, if you, if you look at Philippians 3, it's connected to knowing him, getting to know him, getting in the word and knowing him. And Ephesians 6.10 tells us this in that wonderful passage on spiritual warfare and resisting temptation. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And oftentimes when we fail to live as we intend or we want, and we do that. Just like Paul described in Romans chapter 7, the harder I try, the behinder I get, I'm falling on my face all the time. Thank God for his mercy, for his restoring grace. He lifts me up. But how am I going to learn to avoid that, those failures again? To be strong in the Lord. 
in his might. It's a, it's a matter of dependence upon our God. And I'll tell you what, if, you, if we aren't knowing him, connecting with him, fellowshipping with him in prayer and in Bible reading and meditation on the word, and maybe even fellowship with other Christians is intended to remind us of the goodness of our God and the, and the principles of his word as we discuss them and live them out together. Those things all contribute to being strong in his might. It is him we are reliant. We need to learn to be reliant on, and that comes from simply knowing him. It's not complicated. We make it hard because we often desire the wrong. That's what makes it hard. That's what makes it complicated. But in the simplicity of a pursuit of a close walk with Christ, we find strength. Colossians 1, 10, and 11 put it this way, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. That sounds like a holy life. Increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and longsuffering with joy. Is he walking worthy, walking a holy life? A victorious life comes from increasing in the knowledge of God and thereby strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. It's awful hard to power the light bulb if you aren't plugged in. Unless you happen to live under the high wires over here, then you can pretty much just carry a light bulb under the power wires and it lights up by itself. But in normal circumstances, the light bulb's not going to get power to light up if it's not plugged in. And that's what fellowship with Jesus is about, spending time with him, knowing him, so we can tap into his power and he can provide. I don't know how he does it. We know it's communicated through the Spirit. We think about victory, victorious living. We think of that verse in Galatians chapter 5, which tells us to walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's just the simplicity. We know how the Spirit works, don't we? Through the Word. That's how we respond to the Spirit. It's not some supernatural infusion of power, necessarily, though it is on the other hand, but it comes as we respond to the Word He teaches us, the Word He convicts us of. The word he engraves in our hearts, and as we respond by faith to the word, dependent upon the spirit to fulfill that in our lives, we can have victory. And as it goes on later in that passage, produce the fruit of the spirit, which is holy living, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, and so on. Too often, we as Christians are snared by the attitudes and appetites and perspectives and behaviors of this world because we fail to pursue him to know him, to spend time with him. And while sometimes we might do our diligent duty and read a verse as we run out the door in the morning, nod to God in a prayer as we, as we eat our lunch, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a diligent pursuit of a person who loves me with an everlasting love, who, ex who extends mercy beyond, beyond belief from everlasting to everlasting, who is good and kind and faithful when I am so unfaithful, and it's that love that draws us, is it not, to himself. And so we find the ability to live holy lives in the power of God as we draw near to him. But then we also find strength to stand, the courage to stand for Christ in a world that is so anti-Christ, so, so much in hatred of the things of God. And that courage to stand for Christ is often lacking in our lives, isn't it? But that's nothing new. Timothy was another one who lacked that courage, that fortitude to stand for the truth, for the word, and for what is right. 
And Paul often encouraged Timothy to be strong. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 8, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in his sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. And it's only through the power of God that a person can really endure sufferings for Christ and keep on going. I'm not saying that everybody who's endured sufferings has lived their Christian life in the power of God. Many experience at once turn tail and run never to go back. But to endure and press on and to keep on in a resolve to stand for Christ despite the opposition only comes when we find strength to stand in the power of God. Then we'll share in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. It's the only thing that will sustain us. It's the only thing that will get up and face tomorrow and do it all over again. And that's why the next chapter in verse 1 he says, there, you therefore, my son, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God provides the grace to provide strength for those that are willing to depend on him. Even the Old Testament understood this concept, didn't they? This is not just unique to the New Testament. Isaiah 41.10, one of my favorite verses, says, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. It's personal. You know, the, the Christianity, or it wasn't called that in the Old Testament, but a relationship with Jehovah God was personal in the Old Testament. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold, help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But we have to be plugged in, don't we? We have to be drawing near to him. Those well-known verses in Joshua chapter 1, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid, nor be dismayed. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you. That's a promise he makes. That's what it means to spend time with him. There's a promise that I understand, that God is with me wherever I go. It's a promise he made to me, and that strengthens my faith and my resolve to stand for Christ no matter what comes. It's that resolve that God wants to develop to strengthen our stand for Christ. That prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Fortitude, resolve. That's what God's trying to develop in all each of us as Christians. And by the way, those who are unmarried here, which is a, couple, a few, I think, of us, that's the kind of mate you want to look for. One that has resolve. Not personal resolve, but resolve developed because they've drawn near to God, a resolve that, that no matter what comes, we're going to put Christ first in our lives. That's the kind of resolve God would develop, and he, it's available. How do we get it? To know him, to draw near to him, to be in his word, to hide his word in our hearts. And God provides the strength for us to stand as we're reliant upon him. That's why for Christians, no matter what we face, nothing should shake us. Because our God has got us. He's in control. And we can stand for him no matter what assails us. The third thing, ability, strength, is power for ministry. So important for us to recognize, and this isn't just a portion for pastors and missionaries and Christian servants, so-called. It's for all of us because we're all engaged in ministry, aren't we? We have ministry to our spouses. We have ministry to our families. We have ministry to our neighborhood, to our churches, and so on. And God's called us to communicate Christ. That's our ministry, isn't it? We're to pre preach Christ, the good news, 
we're to present Christ, we're to encourage believers towards Christ. And in other words, we are to be engaged in changing people. And the power to affect change does not come from within, from a type A personality, from a good debater, for someone who is convincing. It comes from the power of God. 2 Corinthians 3.5 says this, not that we are sufficient. This is Paul, by the way, speaking in his portion on ministry. He says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. See, Paul wants us to know that though he may have had a successful ministry and people may have come to Christ through his preaching, he said, it's not us. It's not me. We're not preaching ourselves. We're not sufficient of ourselves. It's not us making these changes, the affecting change in people's life. Our sufficiency is from God. It's so important in our ministries. And that is especially begins in our homes with our marriages. That's where ministry begins, if you're married. It begins in our homes towards one another. To express the love of Christ. To put others first. To, to develop a servant's heart. That's where it begins. It extends into our neighbors and to our churches and our families. But that sufficiency to affect change only comes from God. He provides the power. We share Christ. We exhibit him to the world in our lives. We teach him from our lips. We show love to one another, concern and compassion, the compassion of Christ. And God is the one who produces the change. Acts 1.8, the disciples were told before Jesus ascended into heaven, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Being an effective witness begins with that dependence upon the spirit of power, the power of Christ exhibited through us. The spirit gives us the ability to live a righteous life, gives us strength to stand faithful to the things of God. It gives us power in our witness. And that's what he recommends. Because when we, whether we're living a testimony or sharing a word, it's the spirit of God who takes that and produces change, brings conviction, teaching, instruction, our hearts, our lives are open so that we're dependent upon him. 2 Corinthians 4, we read this passage about gospel ministry. That's what Jesus is, that's why Jesus came. It's all about the gospel. Christ came to, to die, was buried, and rose again. And it says this in the middle of that chapter, verse 7, it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us gospel treasure it's in us it's in earthen vessels we're cracked and broken and faulty but it but it points us to the right perspective in this the reason paul said that i may know him so that i could experience the power of the resurrection because even though paul was a highly educated religious man as he indicated in his testimony top drawer in his zeal for 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 judaism he didn't have it in himself to affect ministry affect change in others he says the excellence of the power is of God and not of us. And how do we experience that power? It's when we draw near to him through his word. When we hide in our hearts gospel truths that strengthen us, that give us perspective, direction, and priority in life. And so the perspective of this, this, this enjoying the power of God is a perspective of dependence upon God. Turn with me, if you will, maybe in closing here, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
You see, while, while much of the world in their social thinking and even too often Christians want to promote practices and teachings that promote determination and strength and fortitude, it comes from one way. The determination for the Christian is to be determined to draw near to Christ. That's where our determination comes in. That's where our discipline comes in. Our discipline comes in for a determination to be dependent on the Spirit and to be in the Word. Because we recognize that when we're dependent on our own strength, we're going to make a mess. If you haven't recognized that in your Christian life, you have some, you have some, you have some learnings to learn. If you haven't recognized that in your desire to be strong to stand, if you haven't recognized that in public ministry, we have things to learn, don't we, to grow in that. And that's why Paul gives us this perspective here in 2 Corinthians. I'm in the wrong Corinthians. Bear with me. In this passage where he mentions the, the, a thorn in the flesh that was given to Paul to keep him humble in, in his ministry, verse 7 says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, Paul recognized the amount of truth that God was communicating through him. He said, A thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, we don't know what that is. We can speculate all day long, but we'll never figure it out. But Paul said, There was something that was given me in my flesh that kept me humble. And he says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul saw it as a hindrance to his life and ministry. God saw it as an asset to keep him humble. And that's why he said in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, one of the prerequisites to knowing him in the Paul's resurrection is to recognize our weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Now, where do you find that? bunch of guys sitting around the campfire boasting about all their failures, weaknesses, inability, lack of strength. That's not human nature. It is a divine nature. It is a divine perspective to recognize. He says that. He says, he's in order, he says that because that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, when Paul says, when I'm aware of my mortality, my inability, my weakness, it's then that I, the power of Christ can rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures and infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And God spends much of our lives showing us our inabilities, our lack of strength and lack of power so that we will turn to him and in Christ find power. You know, Jesus was born a humble birth. And in Philippians 2, it points out the fact that he humbled himself to become a man. He humbled himself to the point of the cross. But then came the resurrection. He, death could not hold him to sin. Could not contain him. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. Because God, we have a God of Almighty God. And that resurrection power that delivered Christ from the grave is a power that's available to you and us as we learn in its simplicity to be dependent less upon ourselves and wholly upon him. And that occurs as we, as we follow the Apostle Paul in the pursuit to know him. Let us pray. Father, we're so thankful, um, Father, for your patience with us, Father. We are so slow sometimes to see our need, Father, and sometimes undisciplined to pursue that need, Father. We pray that you create in our hearts uh, a desire for Christ that we might take time, even during this Christmas season when things get distracting and busy, Father, that we might 
take time to, to see him in his loving kindness and goodness and mercy and grace, your faithfulness to us, Father. And thank you, Father, you've also provided for us not only a Savior from sin, not only a glorious future, Father, you provided for us power to navigate life, the ability, Father, to live holy, which brings great blessing to our lives, the ability to stand for Christ, which brings glory to you, Father, and, and the power to affect change in others as Christ lives through us. Father, make these things understandable to us, real to us, and may we most of all keep it simple and seeking to, to get to know him, to spend time in your word that we might see the beauty and wonder of our Savior. And so we trust, Father, the things we learned today might be made clear and applied to our lives for your glory, we pray this morning in Jesus' name.